Um, happy Mother's Day to you all this morning. Uh, my name is Devin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a uh, joy to be with you as we open up this new series called Kingdom, uh, which will be an overview of the Old Testament. Um, you'll know that the Bible is one big book in two parts called Testaments. Uh, there are 66 books in the Bible, and 39 of them are in the Old Testament. Actually, in terms of volume, three quarters of our Bible is the Old Testament. Uh, so it's kind of central to what we believe. Uh, but perhaps um, when you do uh, pick up the Bible and you turn to your Old Testament, it can feel pretty intimidating and confusing. Uh, maybe you start at Genesis and the first 20 chapters or so are pretty good going. Uh, then it gets harder. And then maybe by the time you've hit the book of Numbers, uh, you're ready to give up. <laughs> you see, reading the Old Testament often leaves us with more questions than answers, doesn't it? Maybe it did the same for you this morning. Um, so the reason we wanted to do an overview is to help us together to navigate through reading and understanding the Old Testament. And so we're excited to go through this together over the next six weeks. And together we're going to see, hopefully, that the Bible is one big story um, that spans across the Old and the New Testament. Um, through the series, you'll be hearing this word kingdom a lot. It's because this uh, is the key to connecting the whole Bible together. And when you hear this word kingdom, I want you to think about it in three elements. Uh, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. We'll be coming back to this concept each week, that the kingdom of God is God's place, uh, sorry, God's people living in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. And we'll see each week how these elements develop through the Old Testament. Um, in our life groups, we're also going to be studying... Um, a series called God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts. And so our sermons are going to be roughly based off this series and Vaughan's book. So now's a really good time to join a life group if you haven't already, so we can unpack these themes in a deeper way. Um, our prayer is that um, through this series that we will be equipped to read and understand and love the Old Testament because in the Old Testament uh, we see Jesus. And so let's pray as we begin. Help us, Heavenly Father, to understand and cherish the Old Testament. And through it, Lord, would we experience your glory and be transformed into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, over the last 10 or 15 years, one of the big shifts in movie making has been towards origin stories. Um, an origin story is an account or a backstory that reveals how a character came to be who they are today. Um, in the last few years, we have been bombarded with origin stories and prequels. Uh, from Batman Begins to Wonder Woman, uh, Monsters University, uh, Star Wars Rogue One, Casino Royale with James Bond... Um, all these movies are aimed at explaining the origin stories of how these characters came to be, these characters we know and love. Uh, you, you'll know in the Marvel Cinematic Universe alone that there's been 12 origin movies made over the last 15 years. It's nearly half of all the movies they've made. 
So they've been doing the same thing over and over and over again, and we keep watching, we keep buying. Um, during that time, they have made over $40 billion at the box office, so it's a good strategy. They're clearly tapping into something we want and we love. So what's the appeal of all these origin stories? What's it about them that capture our interests and our passions? I think it's because these origin stories help us make sense of these characters. It helps put their lives and their actions in context. And as we experience, as we see them experience deep trauma and loss, and as we see them confront life-altering choices and enter into their destiny, we, we start to gain an appreciation of how their past has shaped who they are today. Origin stories bring sense and meaning to all a person does and stands for. So I wonder, how would you write your origin story? How do you explain who you are? Um, what events have defined the meaning and purpose of your life? What are you living for? Maybe as you think about it, you'd, you'd struggle to explain it, or maybe you're still working through these questions. But they're, they're important, aren't they? These, these fundamental questions set the trajectory of our life. Normally when someone picks up the Bible, they'll open to the very first page and they'll begin reading, like we've done. And that's significant because in this first chapter of the whole Bible, we're introduced to the story for all humanity. This is our origin story that we all share together that explains who we are and why we're here. And so Genesis chapter 1 introduces three realities that will set the course of human history and the whole Bible. And I believe that if we understand our past, it'll help us make sense of our present and define our future. And so the first reality that makes sense of our experience is the reality of a powerful God. A powerful God. Look at how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. God is the ultimate reality. He was there from the beginning. He created everything we see. Um, w when you see a painting or a beautiful artwork in a gallery, you know it never exists in a vacuum. There's a whole origin story behind what you see. As you look at the painting, or uh, you can appreciate it for what it is, sure. You'll notice the amazing colours, the intricate texture, the light and the shade. But as you hear the story of the artist who created this piece, your appreciation for this artwork is enriched because your appreciation now extends up to an appreciation for the artist who brings meaning and purpose to what we see. It's the same with creation. Um, as you go to the beach and you feel the coolness of the wind and you see the waves crash against the rocks, or as you enter a rainforest filled with diverse wildlife, sure you can appreciate it for what it is, it's, it's spectacular. 
but there's more to it than that. This didn't just come from nothing. No, this came from a powerful God who brings meaning and purpose to the things we see and experience. I want you to notice the repetition all the way through the passage. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters be gathered together. Verse 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. You can't miss it. And in it lies a remarkable truth. That what we see in this world reveals a God that's so powerful, He simply spoke creation into existence. Um, At the time Genesis was written, there were lots of other origin stories around. And many of these stories claim the world was created by many gods who were constantly in conflict with each other and controlled different parts of existence. So there was a sun god, there's a god of the sea, there's a god of agriculture. And so in this culture, you had to be very careful to pick the right god to worship at the right time. Even today, there's still people that believe that there are many gods controlling different parts of existence. You might hear people say, "Uh, you have your god and I have my god. And so into this culture, Genesis speaks of one god, a god that's not competing with anyone else, a god who's so entirely sufficient and satisfied in himself that he rules creation through his word. But also, God's speaking is significant for one other reason. I want you to think about it. Because God could have clicked his fingers and made the world. God could have thought the world into existence. But as he speaks, it indicates something of how he works. It reveals a God who's fundamentally a relational being, who communicates with his creation. That's the flip side, isn't it? If God's speaking reveals his absolute power and authority, it also reveals that he seeks to be personally known by his creation. You see that in verse 22. God speaks directly and personally to his creation. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Knowing that God is powerful alone doesn't really mean much, right? but that he speaks, that he communicates with us is infinitely important. Because as creator, it's his word that brings meaning and purpose to our world. And so that's why we care so much about the Bible here at Cross Culture. That's why we open it every week, because in it, God is speaking to us. Every time we open the Bible here at church, in in life group, even at our homes, we are encountering His power. We are hearing God speak. And and, and it's remarkable because compare that to all these other gods who are distant and who are remote and who could only communicate through circumstances. So if there was rain, well, maybe the gods were happy for our crops. Or if there was a drought, maybe the gods were angry. Back then, you had to constantly second-guess what they were thinking. Where do we stand? But the one true God doesn't operate like that. You see, His Word brings clarity and sheds light. 
Isn't it amazing that in the Bible we know exactly how to relate to the creator of the universe? We don't need to second guess. Well, the first reality begins with God himself, but also our origin story is also defined by the reality of a good world. Uh, Verse 2, the earth was formless and void, darkness over the face of the deep. And so Genesis describes an existence without any form. It's emptiness, chaos, a void that's filled with darkness. But God, in creating this world, He brings order from this chaos. He makes light shine out of the darkness. And again, the key's in all these repetitions. You see, verse 4, God separated light from the dark. Verse 7, God separated the waters above and below. Verse 14, God separated day and night. All these separations are pointing to a world that was deliberately planned by God, who brings order from chaos. I wonder if you notice this intricate design here, because God, in creating the world, He first creates space, and then He fills these spaces. So days one to three, God creates spaces. He creates day and night. He creates sky and water and land. Then you'll notice days four to six, He fills these spaces with the sun, moon and stars, with the fish, with the birds in the sky, the animals and the humans. It's marvelous. It's why when you look at creation, it's self-evident that you can appreciate its order and design. Um, Stephen Hawking, the renowned physicist, he says the world um, contains very many fundamental numbers and variables that cause life. And he says the remarkable fact is these variables have been so finely adjusted to make life possible. So just a small change in temperature or just the tiniest change in a nuclear force or the mass of an electron would make life impossible on this earth. It speaks to this incredible sophistication and design. Um, Genesis was written to speak against other creation accounts, which claim the world was just one giant cosmic accident. Uh, One of the common accounts back then was that through the war of the gods, the world was created through a god who died in battle and the world is their corpse that is split in half. Um, Or there's another account um, that the world was created through a god who accidentally sneezed and sneezed this world into existence. It assumes randomness, doesn't it? It's an accident. Even today, many of our thoughts of how the world was created seem to assume this type of randomness. That through the elements of chance over billions and billions of years and different tries, it's eventually led to all that we see and experience today. But if you believe that this world has just come about by a random act of chance, then there is no purpose to this world, right? There is no underlying purpose for our existence. What we do doesn't really matter. But no, Genesis says the reason this world feels like it is made and designed is because it was made and designed. 
and it reveals a designer who created our world with purpose. Notice how God repeatedly describes it again. Verse 4, God saw the light was good. Verse 10, God saw it was good. Verse 12, God saw it was good. What is God doing when he's repeatedly saying it's good? He's, 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 in, he's enjoying it, isn't he? You know, when you eat something delicious, you'll probably say, that was good. Really, mm, that was very good. It was very, very good. You keep saying it's good because you're enjoying it. That's the point. That's what God's doing here. Um, there are some religions and, and worldviews today that believe the material world is fundamentally evil and the goal of humanity is to lose our attachment to the physical world. But not for us, right? Our goal is actually to appreciate the beauty of creation and to enjoy it as an extension of our worship to God. It's a wonderful, life-giving purpose. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. It's all pointing to Him. There's a reason that when you look out uh, to a spectacular scenery or you look down off a high mountain, it just takes your breath away. There's a reason why some people say seeing a sunrise is almost a spiritual experience. You might hear people say that. There's good reason for that because as they encounter creation, you are experiencing a glimpse of God's glory. It is pointing to a creator. One of the challenges, I think, of living in a city is that we can often miss the beauty of creation. And so I wonder, when was the last time you just went out to nature simply to marvel at its beauty, simply to draw out your awe to draw out your wonder at the God who made everything. I remember many times in my uh, working life in the city, I remember day and night, Monday to Friday, I would never actually see the sun. Um, so I'd wake up before the sun rose, and I'd come back when the sun had already set, and it was actually a very sad way to live, and I can see a few of you nodding there that uh, have that same experience. And in those moments, it's actually very easy to lose your awe at the God who made everything. Of course, creation gives rise to many modern questions about the origin of the universe, uh, about how science and faith work together. And lots of questions, I think, remain unanswered. For example, um, was the world created in a literal six days here or six periods of time? Uh, but remember that Genesis wasn't written to answer these modern questions. Um, and I think you can observe through just how this passage is written that Genesis 1, is, it's written like a song. It's almost written like a piece of poetry. And so I think this account gives us freedom in some of these questions because Genesis and science are answering different concerns. Science is concerned with the how. How did this universe come into being? What naturalistic forces and processes occurred for it to happen? Whereas you'll know just by reading it, Genesis isn't seeking to answer the how, is it? When you receive a gift outside the front door, the first question you ask 
isn't how it was made, probably the first question you ask is, who gave it, who gave it to me? Who's it from? And then you might ask, what's it for? What's its purpose? And so Genesis answers one more question. Not just the who, but the why of creation. What is our purpose? Which brings us to our last reality, that our origin story is ultimately defined by being a blessed people. The climax of creation is in verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, when a child is born, um, you'll often look at the new baby and you can tell, man, this kid just looks like, just like their parents, right? It is unmistakable. They unmistakably bear the family likeness. Um, a few weeks ago, Nat and I, we went to get an ultrasound and uh, we saw a 3D image of our baby girl in the womb and she looks just like me. It is terrifying. <laughs> oh, man. But it's actually kind of the same with God because when we are created in His image, we all bear the family likeness. It's remarkable. Um, if you had walked around the ancient world, you would have seen statues and idols of gods that bear a human resemblance. Idols that are, have a human resemblance that are mixed with animals and other creatures. Why? Because across humanity, we generally have made gods in our image, right? We want gods to look like us and our creation. But do you see, the God of Genesis is so different. He doesn't have an idol. He doesn't have a statue. Because he's not made in our image, we are made in his image. We are God's statue. We are living evidence of our creator. And interestingly, the definitive mark of being made in God's image is in verse 26. We're given a job. We're given a job to rule and have dominion over creation. So just as God is a ruler, we bear his image because we rule and we steward creation on his behalf. So why are you here? What is the purpose of your life? Your purpose is to reflect God's glory by working and stewarding his creation. And so doing, we, create, we take the raw materials of this world and we create things for the good of creation, for the good of human flourishing. You, you might not notice, but this can happen in lots of different ways. For example, a builder takes the raw materials of brick and wood, orders them, creates a lovely house for people to live. A chef takes the raw ingredients, he orders them. Uh, they make an amazing meal for us to be fed and to be sustained. Um, a cleaner takes the raw materials of the world, orders them, gathers them, so we can experience health and hygiene. Even an accountant. An accountant takes the raw materials of numbers, orders them, creates accounts so that we can make wise decisions. A doctor takes the raw materials of, uh, of symptoms, orders them to form a diagnosis, then prescribes medicine for healing. Sometimes we don't realize, but we are doing all these incredible, incredible things because we're made in God's image. 
And, and I want you to see how we can even find purpose and joy, even through the things we might find ordinary and mundane, because in all these things, we are imitating the creative impulse of our maker. And in verse 27, both male and female are created in God's image, which is a radical, radical statement for its day. Genesis is speaking into a world where women were not seen as the equal of men. Women were often just seen as items of property to own. But Genesis couldn't be clearer, right? Both male and female are made in his image and are equally valuable in his sight. The image of God is what provides us a basis of human rights. Where else do you otherwise ground a basis of human rights? Remember, international human rights law is founded on our dignity and our worth in being made in God's image. It's something objective. Because if we are here, Rick, for example, if we're here just by chance, or if we're here by just mere evolution, wouldn't it make sense for strong nations to oppress weak ones? And wouldn't that be right? Wouldn't it be right for powerful people to oppress the marginalized if it's the survival of the fittest? But no, the Christian worldview is able to point to something very concrete and say, this is what makes every life matter, no matter how strong or weak, rich or poor. This is what makes poverty and and injustice unacceptable because God's image carries an infinite dignity and worth and is something that must be protected. And of course, the, the reason we find racism so ugly so dehumanizing is because it denies the fundamental reality of our existence. That regardless of race and culture, we are all made in God's image and are infinitely valuable. Do you see how Genesis makes sense of things we instinctively know to be good and true? That's what this does. It is a sense-making document. Because as God looks upon the people he made, he describes it not just as good, but very good. This is the pinnacle of all he's made. In the ancient world, uh, the gods created humans simply to be their slaves. And so humans were simply created just to do the work the gods were tired of doing themselves. But God's commission here is radically different. God says to the humans in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over my creation. God's commission is for the good of humanity. It enables us to flourish. It enables us to enjoy this world he's provided. And where in the ancient times people were expected to provide food for the gods, We see the same thing today, don't we? People still provide food offerings to gods. No, we know God doesn't need our food. And in verse 29, God is the one who provides food for us. He provides everything for us. Do you see what God is like? The supreme God who is speaking creation into existence, he takes the position of a servant. He is the one who provides for us and he's been doing so since the very beginning of time. Do you realize that all the gods that we slave away for, 
the gods of our jobs or our reputation or money. All they do is take. They take so much from us. They, they drain our time and our energy. They consume our thoughts and our affections and it's never enough. You can always work harder. You can never have enough money. You can never fully be loved and accepted by everyone. All these gods say, you give your life for me. But only the true God says here, I'll give my life for you. I'll provide for you. And so it makes sense then on the seventh day that God would rest from his work because there's nothing more to do. And this is how it should be. It's, it's a world with balance and harmony, a world where work isn't the ultimate goal, but rest is as we work with God and then we rest and enjoy it with him. This is our origin story. This is who we are. This is why we're here. How the Old Testament begins is so foundational because it will set the stage for everything that's going to come. Um, creation establishes the basis of how God is going to work through the whole Bible. And later we're going to find out why God's speaking is so significant. If you look at John chapter 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word. The reason God's Word is so powerful and so relational, because God's Word is Jesus, right? God's Word is Jesus. God, Jesus is with God at the beginning of time, creating us in His image. And look at how Paul will build on creation in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For God, the God who said, Let the light shine out of the darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying the same God who speaks life into existence is the same God who speaks new life into existence now through Jesus Christ. And so if you have believed or if you do believe in Jesus for your salvation, you have actually experienced the power of God in creation. He is creating new life in us. And hopefully you'll be able to see that every promise in the Bible is going to rest on creation. Because if you believe that God has the power to create a world from nothing, well then you can believe that God has the power to raise a man from the dead. If you believe in creation, you can believe the resurrection. And if you believe that God blesses humanity and provides for them like a servant, then it's going to make perfect sense to you that God will again take the position of a servant, humble himself to, on death on a cross for our sins. And of course, if you believe that God delights and enjoys his creation, you can believe he hasn't given up on this world. He's preparing a new creation, a new heavens and earth for us to enjoy once more. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. And I think this is what creation does. Genesis 1 helps us to see everything. It makes sense of our experience and gives meaning and value to our existence. And so this is where we are by the end of chapter 1. The pattern of God's kingdom has been established. 
we see God's people, the first humans, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the whole world he's created for us, who are enjoying God's perfect rule and blessing as they reflect his glory and care for this world. This is the way it should be. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see how this kingdom continues to develop in the Old Testament. And next week, we'll see what went wrong. So let's pray. Lord of heaven and earth, we marvel at your creative impulse and power. We're in awe that you spoke this world into existence and you speak to us directly. Lord, would we never lose our awe for all you've provided, for this life you've given us, for the new life you give us through Jesus. And so over these next six weeks, Lord, help us to encounter you through the pages of the Old Testament that we may see Christ and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.